you are the weakest link. Goodbye. No, I'm just kidding. That just that always reminds me of that. I, I like that. Well, uh, it really is good to be here with you guys and gals this morning, whether you're hanging out and checking us out online uh, or able to join us here in person. I've been looking forward to being able to do this uh, for quite some time. A little while ago, Doug came to me and he said uh, he was going to be out of town uh, for the closing of this Colossians series, and so he asked me to kind of wrap things up. And uh, so this Colossians series is where we've been talking about the fact that it is all about Jesus. Uh, for those of you who may not know, uh, may not be aware, my name is David Schneller. Um, I, my grandparents went here, uh, my parents went here uh, after they were married, and uh, I, I grew up here from the time that I was maybe 10 years old uh, through, through high school, graduated, uh, went to Bible college in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, did ministry for about a dozen years, and uh, once the pandemic hit, uh, kind of changed gears, and we've been able to be back here, Stacy and I, uh, for the last uh, year and a half or so, just helping out, uh, volunteering, pitching in however it is that, uh, that we can. If you're going to be following along with us in the scriptures today, uh, your job's going to be pretty easy. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 through 6. It's just five really small, short Verses which I believe carry a huge meaning not only to understanding the book of Colossians but our place in the kingdom of God. Uh, so let's jump in uh, to, uh, to Colossians chapter 4, starting with verse 2. Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make, always, uh, make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. As Paul writes uh, this, this last chapter in the book of Colossians, he, he leaves us with an important example from his life and some truths that we can draw from that, as well as some simple directions of how we can start to implement the truths that we have just gleaned through this book called Colossians. Now, whenever I teach, I like to give kind of a roadmap of where it is that we're going to be going. So today we're going to an answer three basic uh, yet impactful questions. What is the mystery of Christ? Why is it worth everything? And how does all of this change my Monday morning? And I think that once we answer those three questions, we'll find and we'll be able to draw down the truth that, that comes from the entire book of Colossians, and especially in this chapter, that the mystery of Christ changes everything. That's our key takeaway uh, for not only today, but for this whole book of Colossians, is that the mystery of Christ changes everything. Now, if you're a little bit squeamish, when I say the phrase, mystery of Christ, you might be looking, you know, at your lap to find a seatbelt, thinking we're going to buckle in, and I'm going to take you on some weird, uh, uh, some weird conspiracy theories or historical vague superstitions, but, but I want to assure you, if that's the case this morning, that the mystery of Christ is a lot more simple than that. The biblical concept is actually pretty, pretty straightforward. We, we read it four or five times in the New Testament. Paul alludes to it. And, and in verse 3 here, I'll, I'll kind of go back and highlight that. Paul asks the church to pray that he might be able to proclaim the mystery of Christ. 
So what is the mystery of Christ? In simplest terms, the mystery of Christ is an open secret which you can't unsee, that everything points to Jesus. That's a nice word salad, isn't it? Right, like some words that sound nice that go together, but not sure exactly what it means. Uh, So I thought, since that might be a little bit confusing at first, uh, I'd give some examples from everyday life, some things that we see in, uh, in, in our, in our day-to-day. Uh, many of the world's biggest companies, you may or may not know this, use open secrets, these mysteries that are hidden in plain sight within their corporate logos. Have you seen some of these things here? We're going to start off with some really simple ones that you've probably seen before. Uh, maybe you're, some of you are nodding your head like, yeah, I know, I know this one here. Uh, Federal Express, or FedEx as we call it, for short, has, has a, a hidden mystery hidden in plain sight there. If you see between the letter E and the, the letter X there, it forms an arrow. And what that's meant to communicate is a, a straightforward process. Point A to point B, get there fast and efficiently and well. So some of you, most of you probably have already seen that or maybe even picked up it on, uh, on it on your own. Uh, here's another one that maybe you've seen or heard of before. Have you seen this one with the Tostitos logo? Do you see what's, what's there? Yeah, some of you are... Now on your heads, if you notice the, the T's in the middle of the word Tostitos is two people and they're sharing a chip above a bowl of red dip. Now this was invented before COVID hit, so we don't advise sharing a chip, uh, let alone probably even a bowl of dip. But some, somebody in the back was just like, whoa, I blew your mind today. So that's, that's awesome. But what, what it's meant to represent in this case is that Tostitos bring us together, right? I guess is what, uh, what it is that they're, they're going for. All right, so let's go a little bit uh, more advanced here. Some of you probably have picked up on this one on your own. I, I shared this one with somebody before. And they're like, well, yeah, I, just, I didn't even think that was hidden. That was just there. But I, I could, this was one of those that I saw that something was there. I just couldn't quite pick up on what it was. So we have goodwill here, and you notice the, the, the letter G up there at the top is the same one that's used in the font for goodwill. So the easiest way to show this is to uh, copy it and mirror it and put them together. Not only is it a lowercase g, right, uh, but it's half of a smiley face, which represents the goodwill, the sense of goodwill that you supposedly experience at goodwill, right? Uh, so hopefully I wasn't the only one that uh, this is new to today, but maybe I am. That's okay. Let's keep going. Uh, there's this brand new website. Nobody's really heard of it before, but it's called Amazon, and you can buy stuff on it. And uh, it ships to your house pretty quick. It's kind of convenient. Do you see the hidden space cowboy in this one? No, I'm just kidding. There's not a space cowboy. But there is something hidden there uh, when it comes to the arrow. If you notice, there's an arrow pointing from the letter A to the letter Z, which is meant to represent that Amazon carries everything from A to Z. And you know that that's true. I'm pretty sure you could buy like a, a pet monkey on Amazon Uh, these days. All right, just a couple more here. Uh, Look to the person next to you uh, and tell them how you think that this word is pronounced. Go ahead. You can whisper it. You can say it out loud, however you want. Right? Okay, so it is actually pronounced Hyundai, all right? And kind of like Sunday, the only reason why I know that is because they had a big push of commercials about 10 or 15 years ago when they were trying to make their way into the the American market here. So this one's kind of interesting and you probably didn't notice it on your own. Uh, unless you've read articles like these before. But, but the uh, designer of this graphic, 
wanted to do two things. One, they wanted it to look like the letter H, which that's easy enough, but then also it was meant to represent a handshake from uh, somebody in the corporation with one of their customers. Now you're looking, scrunching your eyes, and you're going, okay, that's, that's kind of a stretch. That was the intent, though, and I can tell you, uh, we went out to dinner a couple nights ago, and we're sitting in traffic on 275 for, uh, you know, 30, 45 minutes, and, and like every third or fourth car that passed by had this on the front or the back of it, and I could not unsee that handshake. I didn't even see the letter H anymore, so maybe when you go out to the parking lot or as you, uh, as you leave today, you'll, you'll kind of notice these two. And that's, that's kind of one of these things about the, the things that, which are hidden in plain sight is that once you see it, you can never unsee it. All right, let's do one more. Here's one that we can all relate to. Give you a second to see. Now we've had some practice. See if you can come up with and tell the person next to you uh, what it is that, uh, that is hidden in plain sight here within the Hershey's Kisses logo. Do you notice that in between the K and the I, there's a Hershey's Kiss nestled between those first two letters? It's pretty clever, right? It's, it's, it's always been there, but it's been hidden in plain sight. But now that you know that it's there, it's like you would never unsee it. And, and I even, I've, I've seen these for, for quite a while. And I even now kind of think like, how did, I never, how did I not see that? Even sharing it with you guys today, I thought, oh, they're going to know all of this because they're all so obvious, but maybe, maybe you've caught on to a couple of these. So I, I think that this uh, analogy is pretty fun, uh, but not only that, I think it gives a, a good insight to a comparison of what we're talking about when we mentioned the mystery of Christ. It's an open secret. All of scripture, all of time, all of history points to Jesus, but, but sometimes it takes that switch to be flipped before we can finally see it. And once we see it, we can't unsee it. And then here's another thing that's kind of cool and applicable to, to this phenomenon. When you go to Walmart today, or Kroger, or wherever it is that you shop, you're going to be standing in the chips aisle, and you're going to nudge the person next to you, and you're going to be like, hey, do you know there's two people in the middle of the Tostitos logo? Yep, do that. And uh, you can pretend you've known it for years, so you invented it yourself. I won't even, I won't tell on you. All of those same principles apply when we're talking about the mystery of Christ. So the mystery of Christ is an open secret which you cannot unsee. And here's getting more specific to what that means. Everything points to Jesus. I made a simple graphic to show the basic history of time as we know it and how everything points to Jesus. I broke time down into three basic periods. This graphic is a little bit oversimplified, but uh, hang with me here because I, I think it can be very helpful. We start with the period of history called uh, the Old Testament, which covers the span of time between creation and the arrival of Jesus Christ. And then next we have the period of time from Jesus' birth uh, until the end of his uh, time on earth physically and including the time when his original followers wrote the books of the New Testament, these letters like it is that we're studying today. Uh, and then the, the final point in time is where we find ourselves now, uh, which when I was a kid, I always thought it was like before Christ and after death, right? And maybe some of you even still think that. But I, I, I learned as I grew up that that stands, A.D. stands for Anno Domini, 
which means is Latin for the year of our Lord. That basically just connotes the, uh, the time between the end of the writing of the New Testament and Jesus' second coming. So with that framework in mind, uh, let's see here. With that framework in mind, uh, let's, let's look at how everything points to Jesus. Tell the story of the Old Testament in three minutes or less. You ready? It started in the garden, uh, and, and it's kind of helpful as a side note to see. Sometimes we think of the Bible as like a, a self-help book or a, something we can just kind of like put our finger on, and what's this going to mean for me today? And, and, and there is some truth to that, but, but really it's helpful for us to look at it in this sense where we see that the Bible is one overarching story made up of 66 individual parts and many different authors over thousands of years which tell the same story. So here's what we're going to kind of do today. Uh, it started in the garden, right? And God's created everything and he saw that it was good. And then Adam and Eve were deceived and sin entered the world and created this endless chasm between us and God. But God, even from the very beginning of time, from that very first fall in the garden, had a plan to bring his people out of the slavery of sin into a land of hope and promise. And that's the main story that we draw from that uh, period of time known as the slavery in Egypt, the, the, the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea, is that, that God used Moses to draw his people out of physical slavery. Once they crossed the Red Sea, God met with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, and remember the clouds and the lightning and the thunder and the fear, and the people were gathered at the base wondering what was going on up there. And, and in that meeting, God established a contract with Moses. Now you're saying, wait a minute, a contract? That sounds a little bit crass. Does God have contracts? But the word in Scripture that's used is covenant. It's a relational contract. Uh, the, the Latin translates it as testament, so that's why we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Really, contract is an appropriate way uh, of looking at it, this agreement between God and his people. And here's what that original contract with Moses said. I will be your God, your light, and your salvation. And here are the terms. You will follow me, and you will be blameless, and you will be set apart as a nation, shining the light to the rest of the world. You know how long it took for him to mess that up? It wasn't even a full chapter, right? Like Moses is coming down from the mountain, and, and they had all said, like, yeah, we'll do this. We'll work hard, and we'll strive, and we'll become blameless in your eyes, and we can fulfill the terms of this contract. And, and the problem was they had already broken the very first one, right? I have no other gods before me. And they had melted down all of their gold that, by the way, they brought from Egypt, which God miraculously did. They melted down all of that gold and they created this golden calf and they started worshiping it. And that was maybe foreshadowing of the fact that things are not getting much better. Thankfully, though, thankfully, there is a clause in this contract with Moses that says, although the penalty for breaking this contract is death, you may have a substitute, a pure, spotless lamb that takes the place, that takes the punishment of sin because sin requires death. But you may transfer your sin onto the spotless lamb. Is any of this starting to kind of sound like something you might see later in Scripture? Like I said, it never got better uh, from there, the golden calf. 
In fact, as you read through the rest of the Old Testament in the times of the, of the judges, you see this endless, devolving, debilitating cycle where things get worse and worse and worse and the lows get lower and the highs are never as high as they had once been. But then God granted his people a king named David who brought peace on every side to God's people. And God made David an important promise, which comes into play later, that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. That became known in that culture as the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, who would be like this knight in shining armor that was going to make everything right once again. And then after that, God sends his prophets to the people and reinforces the need to prepare the way for this Messiah. He'd be they predicted that he would be born of a virgin, a perfect spotless lamb who would pay the penalty for sin once and for always. And he would draw all people unto himself and reign over them forever. Do you see a glimpse of Jesus in all of this? It's exactly what happened in the New Testament times. We read that the curse of sin came through Adam. But as we, as we pull up this list here on the New Testament, the curse of sin came through Adam, but the curse of sin was broken in Jesus. Moses led God's people out of physical slavery in Egypt. Jesus, uh, during, during the Passover, Jesus started the process of freedom in him at Easter. God made a promise of a king who'd sit on the throne forever. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, we read that he sits at his throne where he will reign forever. And one day he's going to come again and finish that which he started, which is to restore his creation to a perfect state, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. So let me, that was a lot of information, right? Just gave the whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, pretty much just in a couple of short minutes. Uh, and, and I hope that that's kind of helpful to see this bird's I view, but let me, let me boil it down to why I say that this points to the fact that everything points to Jesus. See, the Old Testament points back, or points forward to our need for Jesus. And the New Testament points backwards and show us how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. Now, you might be looking at me and, and saying, well, duh, of course everything points to Jesus. But, see, what we have is the benefit of a couple thousand years of hindsight. It would be like, um, if I could use a, a couple of modern examples, right? It would be like, and spoiler alert, the movie's probably like 30 years old, but uh, I won't get too much into it. But if, if I were to explain to you the ending of the movie The Sixth Sense, right? Before you'd ever seen it, and then you watch it. The whole time you're going to be sitting there going, well, duh, of course that's how it's going to end. Like, how did people not see this? Why was this such a big thing when it, when it came out in this big twist at the ending? Or maybe it's like, if I were to tell you what was hidden in all of those logos, those messages that we had looked at before, before I even showed them to you, you'd be sitting there going, well, yeah, of course, that's, that's what's there, right? Because we have the benefit of hindsight. It's not like the mystery of Christ was ever meant to be hidden. It's just that some people couldn't see it on their own, that everything throughout the course of history points to Jesus. And you know what's even more easy to forget for me? The guy who wrote this book, Colossians, he was an adult before that switch was flipped. 
He didn't understand. He didn't see that everything was pointing to Jesus. And once he saw that, it was something he could never unsee. And because of his uh, understanding of the mystery of Christ and that Jesus, everything points to Jesus, it changed every, everything in his life. And I, I'm not saying that as an exaggeration. Saul went from being a Pharisee. Remember, those were the bad guys in the story with Jesus. He went from being a, a Pharisee who was actively pursuing, right? When he was converted, he had a warrant in his hand that he was traveling to from the high priest to put Christians, followers of the way, into prison, and many of them would be killed. And he went from that to becoming known as Paul, the man who was the greatest missionary of the early church, maybe the greatest missionary ever. He went from somebody who thought that, that this worship of, of Jesus was this heresy that would prevent God from sending the Messiah. He believed in the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, that one from the line of David who would reign and rule forever. But he thought that, that following this false person would hinder God from sending that uh, and, and making it be a, a fulfillment. But as soon as he saw that Jesus changes everything, as soon as he understood that everything points to Jesus, he could never unsee it, and his life was never the same. In verse 3, Paul tells us that the mystery of Christ is the reason for which he is currently in chains, right? So Paul writes this letter to the church in Colossae. He is actively in prison, and he uh, Notice, notice what he doesn't ask for them to do. You know, he, he says, I, I'm here in chains because of this mystery of Christ. And he, he doesn't say, pray that, that the jailers will change their mind and set me free. He doesn't say, pray that I might be released from prison so that I can be sneakier and proclaim the word of God in a better way that doesn't get me caught once I'm free. If you were in prison, if everything had been stripped away, I think... I speak for myself, but I think most of us would at least think in the back of our minds like, God, I understand the importance of this message, but if it's going to cost me my life and my freedom, I, I just, I don't know where I go once I get out of here. But that's not his attitude, right? He says, this is why I'm in chains, but pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Silly example, but if you watch The Office, it'll make sense. Remember that episode where Michael Scott starts dating Pam's mom and uh, she just gets all upset and she looks at him and she says, I forbid you to date my mom. And he looks at her and he goes, well, I'm going to date her harder. That's kind of what, what Paul's reaction was here, right? <laughs> he was being told, I forbid you from sharing this good news about Jesus. And he says, well, I'm, I'm going to share it harder. <laughs> right? Pray that God would open this door that I might share, uh, share this message. He doubles down on the mission because Jesus changes everything. And since Jesus changes everything, his message is worth everything. It's worth our temporary happiness. It's worth our comfort. It's worth our time worthy of our talents, worthy of our treasure, the resources that we have to be able to give and build the kingdom. It's worthy of our thoughts, of our minds, of our devotion. It's like that treasure that Jesus talked about that was buried in a field that it's worth selling out everything else that you have so that you may take hold of it because it is worth everything. Because true freedom in Christ is a gift worth sharing 
no matter the temporary cost. I'm guilty of this, and maybe a lot of us are too, right? We think of Paul, and he's, he's such a great person from history, and he's such a, a great example in a lot of ways, and he, he wouldn't tell you that, but, but we just see, but we, I, sometimes I picture Paul as this, like, gospel robot, right? Like, must preach good news, and, and he's just, like, totally dedicated. He's just wired. He's programmed to do this, and he, he just does it without asking why, but, but as I look at the human side of Paul that comes out in the tone and tenor of his letters, I, I see a person who is, is obviously gr- motivated by this miraculous conversion and, and the things that he had seen, the way that God had called him, but, but I also see a man that looks back at his old way of life, and there's that human component where he's like, man, I remember what it used to be like thinking that it was all about the rules, thinking that it was a, a checklist, but believing that I had to be God's policeman, thinking that it was all up to me, that I had to earn God's favor and salvation. And yeah, we said on the side, no, we know that we can't ever do that. But, but I, I really, if I, if I look at that, I, I think that's, that's where my thoughts were. And I think that that was one of his greatest motivations for sharing the good news about Jesus. And if you've experienced that conversion, if that switch has ever been flipped in your mind, you know what I mean. You think back to what it was like and the misery and the, the hardship of thinking that, that your walk with Jesus was like this, this line and like, okay, today I'm on this side and I'm, I'm doing pretty well and so I'm, I'm good with God and then, oh man, I messed up. So this side, I'm, I'm over here and, and thinking that it was performance-based and, and willpower-based and behavior modification-based, man, that's a struggle and it's empty. Freedom in Christ is a gift worth sharing no matter the temporary cost. Paul knew that in his own life. And I think that it was a big uh, motivator for, uh, for the way that he shared the message. All right, so keeping in mind everything that we've learned in this month's study of Colossians, uh, where is it that we go from here? The question that I like to kind of ask myself practically is, is how does this thing that I have learned change my Monday morning? Well, the, the application, of course, is not limited to Monday morning, but when we leave these seats and walk out those doors, what's different? What's our next step? What is it that we do? Paul gives us in this passage two very simple, very practical ways to start. Look at these first three requests that Paul makes. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message. Later on he says, pray that I may proclaim it, the mystery of Christ, clearly as I should. Do you think that prayer seems a little bit important? See, knowing the mystery of Christ drives us to pray, pray, and pray. He talks about praying, being watchful and thankful. As, as we lift up our prayers to God, being watchful of the way that he has changed our lives and the way that he is changing the lives of others, the way that he has provided, and, and that drives us to, to realize, to, to refocus, to center our aim on what it is that we're supposed to be focused on here in life. 
He asks us to pray for an open door, right? He says, pray that, uh, pray that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever, have you ever woken up one morning and said, God, I, this seems like just a Tuesday, and I don't have any big plans of how I'm going to go and reach and share and, and teach and talk and pray to somebody else, but, but I know that you have somebody in mind. Would you, would you open that door and make it clear to me to walk through and take that opportunity? On the occasions when I can think of having prayed that prayer, God has answered that every single time. You know, maybe there wasn't a conversion right there on the spot, but he started a conversation that was a seed that was later watered and grown and that, that bore fruit. So pray with a, being watchful and thankful. Pray for an open door and pray that the message of Christ might be proclaimed clearly as it should. Prayer is, is like adjusting our aim to focus on things of eternal consequences that we face on a daily basis. And once we have done, allowed God to do the inward work that he does in prayer, Paul gives us this outward uh, couple of suggestions to, to do, uh, practical tips. In verse 5, he says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. In simplest terms, Paul's asking us to treat unbelievers like Jesus did. Think of those encounters when, when Jesus encountered somebody that was outside, that was other, that was shoved away, that wasn't part of the kingdom yet. Think of the way that he, he was gracious and compassionate and winsome, the way that he, that he made people lean in instead of cowering away. This is the example that Paul tells us to follow, not only by the way that we behave, but also in the way that we speak. I can identify uh, with, with Paul a lot, and it's actually the reason why I'm up here. I grew up, like I said, going to church. My parents are missionaries, lived in other countries, planted churches, was there for all the Sunday school and VBS and the you know, the Play-Doh and the, uh, the little wafers and the Kool-Aid and basketball and pizza and, and all that good stuff and, and the memory verses and the Lord's Army song and the Father Abraham. I was there for all of it, right? And I grew up thinking I understood what Jesus means. But all along, I missed it. It wasn't until I was, I was an adult fully formed adult, that I looked back and I was like, well, they were telling me all this time that I can't earn the favor of God, that we live out of gratitude for what Jesus did on the cross rather than out of obligation to fulfill what it is that we can't do on our own. And it's what drives me to do the things that I do, to speak the way that I speak, to act the way that I act because in the same way that Paul thinks about, man, how, how miserable was that to go through that endless cycle where you're tossed around by legalism and hurt and struggle and anger and how sweet it is to experience the peace that only comes from freedom in Christ. See, the mystery of Christ 
changes everything. And I hope that it'll change us today, starting with the way that we behave and with the way that we speak. Would you pray with me? God, we want to thank you for this morning, for the time that you've given us to open and experience your word. Thank you for your truth, uh, for the goodness of it. God, we thank you for the mystery of Christ, the fact that everything all along has been pointing us to a Savior, to a spotless Lamb that took our place, that was our substitute, that gives us hope and freedom and peace and life and love. And then it's not something we have to struggle to share, but it's something that overflows from a thankful heart. God, let it be. Would you fill our hearts and our minds and our lives with the knowledge and understanding of who you are, of what you've done, and of what you want for your beloved creation that is a reflection of how great and awesome and mighty you are. We give you praise this morning. In Jesus' name.